I invite you to stand with me now. We're going to turn our attention to Paul's second letter to uh, the Thessalonians and be in the entire first chapter of 2 Thessalonians this morning in our time in God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have had an opportunity this morning to gather as the saints of God in this place and to worship together with our family. Oh, how I miss this place when I'm gone, how grateful I am to be back in it. I'm thankful for this church, the encouragement of the gospel of Jesus and its transforming power in the lives of these people. Help us now, God, as we turn to this second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Let us continue to explore the riches of your goodness in your word to us. Let it change our lives, we pray. Help us, God, not to shrink back from the truth, but to believe it and to declare it with a whole heart and a loud voice to those who are perishing so that they too may believe the gospel and be saved, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning, as we turn now to 2 Thessalonians, we will consider the first subject that Paul introduces in this shorter of the two letters, the righteous judgment of the Lord. This, this letter in verses one and two, we are told as we were in the previous letter, who is writing and who, he, who they are writing to. 
The author of this letter is, the primary author of this letter is the Apostle Paul. He is joined by those who are on his second missionary journey. Silvanus, it says in the text, Silas, a more common name in the New Testament, and Timothy, to the churches of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul offers his common greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not exactly sure, scholars are not, when this letter was written, although it seems uh, probable that this followed within the months after the first letter. I, I tend to believe that this letter was written by Paul from the same location in Asia as he is in Greece, as he is writing back to the Thessalonians, likely at the response of his first letter. Now, obviously, with travel being what it is, Paul likely being in Corinth and then being in Thessalonica, it would have taken some time for his first letter to get to them, for them to uh, receive it and have discussion with whoever his courier was. We're not told. We know he had already sent Timothy there once, but we don't believe it was Timothy a second time. And this courier comes back likely to Paul with news of the, what's happening in the church. And it seems because of some of the um, some of the themes that Paul has already discussed in 1 Thessalonians that he gives more information concerning in 2 Thessalonians that what is most probable here is that he is simply responding to what has been communicated to him either in question or as information, addressing many of the same subjects that have been brought back to this team from whoever delivered the letter, which is why... This is a first for me in my pastoral ministry here that we're considering two books back to back like this in the New Testament. It's not normally the way uh, that I preach books. Normally we preach a book of the Old Testament, then we preach a book of the New Testament, and then we just go, go right back. But I wanted to preach First and Second Thessalonians together because I really do think they should be taken together. I think the second is a response to some of the questions and situations that arose from the first. We're going to be able to progress through 2 Thessalonians, which is shorter in a lot quicker of a time because Paul doesn't deal with as many subjects, but simply builds upon that which he had already discussed, not introducing any real new ideas uh, here in this second letter. And where Paul begins in chapter one is in the same format that he's followed, and ident identifying himself as the author, identifying the Thessalonians as the recipients, an offer of grace and peace, which was uh, Paul's way of extending a Christian greeting towards this church. And then as he uh, does in his other letters, offers a prayer for the church. But contained within this prayer is teaching why Paul decided that this would be the shortest of uh, the New Testament corporate letters that he writes, because it is, it's the shortest of them, why he would determine that this would be, that he didn't have as much time to write or didn't have as much space to write, that's lost to us here. But Paul even uses, because of the brevity of this letter, he even uses this, this introductory prayer as a moment of teaching on a specific subject. The, the circumstances surrounding the teaching is the continued persecution of the church. This church, the church at Thessalonica, had been persecuted from day one. If you'll remember at the introduction of our series here in these two letters, 
Uh, we went back to the book of Acts and saw Paul and his team on their second missionary journey come into Thessalonica, proclaim the gospel, and almost immediately face opposition. Opposition that made its way into almost a riot within the city, drummed up by those who were opposing Paul and his ministry, so much so that he had to flee by night, leaving this fledgling church to kind of defend for themselves after only having spent a brief period of time after converting to the gospel of Jesus there with the ministry, the mission team that was with them. And so Paul sends Timothy to be with them and here's how they are doing and writes a first letter and now again writing a second letter, encouraging them, encouraged by their faith, but recognizing that the persecution that began on day one continues now. We don't know how long in the future this is from their conversion. It is not all that long. And this is the circumstances surrounded this prayer. But Paul is not necessarily teaching on persecution in the prayer. He's teaching on the righteous judgment of God. He's using their circumstances to instruct them in right doctrine and, and belief. He's wanting them to understand something bigger than themselves as they continue to faithfully endure persecution and affliction. So he instructs them in this prayer on the Lord's righteousness. It begins with the Lord's righteous judgment of faithful believers. Look at verses three and four. We ought to always give thanks to God for you. So this is his thanksgiving in prayer. Brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of, and, and the love of, every one of you from one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the church of God for your steadfastness in, in faith, in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, these are present tense verbs that Paul is using, meaning that the word that has traveled back to him after the delivery of his first letter is that the persecution persists, the affliction and trial persists there amongst this church, and yet... They are doing a couple of things. They are enduring it, but they're not only enduring it. They're actually increasing in their faith. Their faith, he says in verse three, is growing abundantly and their love for one another, their love for everyone is increasing. Now the instruction in faith and love were in his first letter. So Paul has written his first letter and, to them and receives information back from them. And here's what he receives back. We're doing this. Whoever it is that brings this message back to the apostle Paul brings good news. And he praises God for that from the outset and says, even in the midst of persecution and affliction, your faith in the Lord is growing and your love for one another is growing. Why is this important in the subject of the Lord's righteous judgment? Because we are seeing, we're going to see as we progress through this text, that it is both the Christians in Thessalonica and the persecutors of the Thessalonian church who are going to be judged by God. But these are faithful, loving Brothers and sisters in Christ, who Paul says, I am thankful to God for you. 
and that he boasts about them to all the churches of God. He's telling everybody everywhere he goes about how faithful and loving this church is and how they have endured with steadfastness the persecution that is coming upon them. So this is who they are. This is a good, godly church. They don't have it all figured out. They still had some issues. There were certainly still some things they needed some instruction in. And Paul's going to do that in subsequent sections of this letter. But here, he's grateful to them for their faith and their love and their steadfastness in persecution. And then he says this in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. You're growing in your faith. You're growing in your love, Paul says. You're growing in your endurance of persecution. You're doing great, brothers and sisters. And this, the fact that you're doing great, what does he say, is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. He writes to this persecuted church and says, the very fact that you're doing well shows that you are being judged by God. Now, if that is true, it probably challenges the way that we think about God's judgment. Because when we think about God's judgment, we think about God's judgment on God's enemies, on those that God, those who are opposed to God, those who are opposed to God's church, those who have rejected the gospel. And make no mistake, Paul is going to get to those people here in a moment. But the judgment of God is greater than that. To have, a, to have a right understanding, a whole picture of the judgment of God, we have to first recognize that Paul is including this church, these faithful, loving, enduring believers in the righteous judgment of God. And he even says what's happening to you is evidence of it, an evidence that you have been found to be worthy of God's kingdom. So yes, The judgment of God is against the wicked and against those who have not followed Christ and have not believed the gospel and against those who have persecuted the church and are opponents of God. But the judgment of God is also on his children. The judgment of God is also for his church. Listen to how Peter writes it in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, for it is time for the judgment, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So hear the connection that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter make. They make a same assumption. And that is the church of God is under some form of judgment of God. It is not the same type of judgment of God that the wicked are under, but we are experiencing the righteous judgment of God and persecution and affliction and trial are simply evidences of that. So, okay then. What I thought as Christians, we were free from the judgment of God. I thought, God, I thought Jesus, you know, the, the, the death of Jesus on the cross kind of released us from that. It released you from the penalty of God's wrath upon your sin, absolutely. But you and I are still 
in our flesh under the judgment of God. So here's how this looks in the life of Christians. Ready? As we endure trial in this life, whether that, whether that trial comes from exterior persecution because of our faith or any other kind of trial that, that we experience in this life, whether it is a shared type of trial that the Thessalonians were experiencing or something different, anything that comes in and tries us in this life is a refining fire in our lives. This is the judgment of God. So we should view the judgment of God in our lives actually as a good thing because as we endure the refining fire of God's righteous judgment as his loving children, what happens is he makes us more and more into the image of his son. When we get to Philippians chapter one, we read this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When we endure trial in this life, it is the righteous judgment of God ensuring our salvation. We should not think about the righteous judgment of God only in some sort of negative context that is poured out on others, although it certainly is. It is also the judgment of a loving father who is making us into the image of his beloved son. So yes, faithful believers endure righteous judgment. It starts with the church. And what it does is it makes us worthy of being found in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul says in verse five, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. He uses that same language at the end of the passage, reminding them again, that your trial and suffering is God's judgment in, the, in Christ, ensuring that you are worthy. And remember, on our own, we are not worthy. But God's work in our lives, the application of the death of Jesus through the good news of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives makes us worthy. You can't make yourself worthy. I can't make myself worthy, but the gospel does. God does. He is the one ensuring our salvation. He is the one at work. And this trial, it, these trials in our lives are a clear sign that God is at work doing his righteous judgment in our lives. And it is not a thing to be feared. It's not a thing to run from. It's actually something that we should recognize our loving father is doing for us, ensuring that we are in him. So this is the righteous judgment as it relates to the church of God. And be clear on what Peter says. It begins in the house of God. We can't, we cannot proclaim the judgment of the world until we recognize that the judgment of God sits in the church. And that we need to recognize that if there is sin in our lives, if there is sin in our corporate life, we need to confess that and continue to turn towards God in repentance. But there is also the Lord's righteous judgment of sinful unbelievers. Look at verses six through eight. Paul continues, since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. 
and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in the flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul writes this really using two tenses. He uses some present tense language and some future tense language, intentionally marrying the two. That the way that we're supposed to think about the relief of God for the persecuted and the affliction of God upon the persecutor of the church is something that we believe is happening now even though we will not experience, necessarily experience it until later. He says there in verse six that God considered it just to replay affliction on those who are afflicting you. Now, there were specific people who were afflicting this church. There were unique opponents in that city who were bent on eliminating the church of God in that place. And they had opposed the message of Paul and opposed his ministry. And now it seems they oppose the existence of this church. And Paul says that God considers it just to afflict those who afflict you. Even though there's no evidence that that affliction was there in that moment. That it was something that God was already doing. The same is true about what Paul writes next. And to grant relief to you you who are afflicted as well as to us. It seems as if Paul's saying this is happening now, but notice what he says in verse seven, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So when does this actual transfer of affliction take place? When does the affliction go from being on the church to being on the persecutor, the one who did the persecution? When does relief come for the church? Is it present tense? Yes, it is present tense insofar as we can believe it and have faith that God will do it. But when does it actually happen? When Jesus comes back. It actually happens at the judgment seat of Christ. It happens in that moment when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In that moment, there is a transfer of affliction that takes place. No longer is it the people of God under affliction from the world. Now the world is going to be under affliction from Christ himself because of their persecution of the church. I'm gonna be careful what I'm gonna say here because some of the images that you saw in that video that we showed from East Africa were illegal. Meaning we we were doing things that we were not supposed to be doing. The the church in that country exists. There There are numerous churches. It's actually hard not to find one. Not many of them do not proclaim the gospel as we understand it and the gospel as the Bible seems to teach it, which is why we've set out with some partners there to plant a gospel-centered church there in that city. But some of the images that we showed you was us worshiping together on Sunday morning. And I will go ahead and tell you, we were breaking multiple laws that day. That is not a registered church. And in that city, in that country, you have to be a registered church. It is absolutely against the law to meet as a church in a house. We were meeting as a church in a house. There were numerous things that we were supposed to be doing that we were not doing. And on the last day before we left, we met with those, some of the leaders of that church that were attempting to plant there. And we were talking about uh, some future work and some other things. 
And I just asked a question. Maybe this was on my mind. I said, what's going to happen when they find out and they show up at your church? They show up at your house. Some of these guys are actually living in that house. So this is like, they've got two things on the line. They got the place that they're living and this new church that they're trying to start. So what's, what's going to happen when they, when they find out? They, and, and without skipping a beat, one of the leaders of Great Joy spoke up and he said, they will come and arrest us. Almost as if I should have just known that. <laughs> I should have just assumed that, that that was going to happen. And I said, okay, they, they will show up and arrest you. It, it, are, are you okay with that? And here's what he said. He said, don't we have to be? We, we can't not meet. We can't not be a church. We have to do what we're doing. And we're working on some of those other things. We're, we really are. We're not intending to be in opposition to what the government there is saying. We're doing the very best that we can to help them and equip them to, to check all of the boxes. But until then, here's what they recognize. The church of God must meet. The church of God must be the church and we are a church together and so we're going to meet here and if we suffer consequences from it, then we suffer consequences from it. Why well, share that story with this morning? Because we need to understand that there are real churches around our world today who are under the same type of affliction that this church, this first century church were under. And many of us have a hard time picturing it the reason I think we have a hard time picturing it, what drives me to that is many of the things I hear people talking about in our culture is religious persecution. It's not actually religious persecution, it's political. Religious persecution looks like if we meet and they show up, they will arrest us. That's religious persecution. And that's what we're experiencing all over the world today. That's what this church here in the scripture was experiencing. And here's the promise that Paul makes in the word of God to this church, you endure. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to flip the script. When Jesus, going, when Jesus comes back, the persecutor becomes the afflicted. The one who is seeking to do harm on you, they are the ones that are going to be face to face with the righteous judgment of God. And he says in verse eight, that Christ is coming with his mighty angels in, fl in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, church. It is not just those who actively persecute the church who will experience the, the righteous judgment of God. It is every soul who has ever lived on this planet and everyone who disobeyed the gospel of Jesus, everyone who did not know God, will in, he will inflict vengeance upon them. Now, let me answer the question for you because some of you already have it in your minds. Why? Why would God do this? Why wouldn't God just inflict his vengeance upon those who are persecuting the church? We could certainly see God doing that. We could certainly justify that in our minds, couldn't we? That those who were actively persecuting and afflicting and harming God's church, we could certainly see Jesus coming and seeking vengeance upon those. But what about those that maybe in our minds, which are wrong by the way, but maybe we deem them to be neutral, they're not, they're not persecuting the church. They're not part of the church. They're just kind of neutral. What, what about those people? Listen to what Romans chapter two says about those people. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, 
You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is no such thing as a neutral bystander in this conversation about the righteous judgment of God. The church is under the refining fire of God's righteous judgment, being made more and more into the image of Christ. And everyone else has a hardened heart. Everyone else, because of the hardness of their heart, will experience the righteous judgment of God and it will be just. It will be right. God will be doing what he is supposed to do in his holiness as he comes, as Christ comes with his angels bringing vengeance upon the world. Look at verse nine. He's going to say how. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Paul here in this brief verse gives us three clear biblical truths about the eternal punishment of sinners. Both those who persecuted the church and those who disobeyed the gospel. They will all experience the righteous judgment of God, not as the church is experiencing, but as those as the enemies of God do. There are three things that he says that are true. The first is it is suffering. It's suffering. He says they will suffer the punishment. There's been an effort actually in all three of these arenas to what one author says, air condition hell to make it seem as if what the Bible clearly says is not what the Bible was clearly saying because we just don't want to think that a loving, eternal God would somehow do this to billions of people, and yet this is exactly what the Scripture says, that the eternal punishment for, for sinners is and will be suffering. They will, for someone to suffer, we often call this conscious punishment. For someone to suffer, they have to know they're suffering. And the church of God throughout history has known suffering. And the church of God, until Christ returns, will know suffering. And sinners, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and then for all eternity, will know suffering. They will suffer punishment. Punishment for what? For the wages of sin is death. They will suffer the punishment of their own sin, their own hard-heartedness, their own rejection of Jesus. Number two, it is eternal. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Meaning it's not temporary. It's not temporal. It doesn't just last for a little while. There's been a great movement within uh, American theology, particularly Western theology, to try to, to try to mediate this idea and say that the suffering and the, the punishment that some will experience will last for a period of time based on their sin, and then one of two things will happen. Either that person will, will be snuffed out of existence, this is known as annihilationism, or a more growing movement in Western theology now is that God's love will eventually overwhelm his wrath, and once this person has paid some type of penance and some, like, the Catholics believe in purgatory, like some sort of level of, of, uh, of punishment and suffering for their sin, that they will ultimately be restored to God. That's not what the text says. It's not the clear teaching of Scripture. Eternal destruction 
does not mean annihilation. It means eternally dealing with the punishing wrath of God because of their sin. And then the most devastating of these, but the one that people don't often want to make an excuse for, but those who are right in Christ should read this verse and say, the worst thing is the last thing away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The eternal punishment of sinners includes an eternal separation from glorious God. Imagine with me, if you will, seeing on the clouds the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ himself, coming to rule and to reign, demonstrating to us, showing us the very glory of God, that picture that Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, that it was just a picture of it. And yet Peter still says, Lord, let's stay here. This is so good. Let me just build some tents and we'll live here for the rest of our lives. And Peter just saw a glimpse of it. We're going to see all of it. Jesus is going to come on the clouds. The whole world's going to see it. And then some are going to be removed from it. Could you imagine seeing the goodness of God in his glory and then being removed from all eternity from that goodness? It's the worst of the three. But yet this is what the text says, that their suffering will be eternal and it will be away from the presence of the Lord and from his glorious might. And the way this text is actually written is it's written in a way that we're supposed to read that the punishment comes from that removal, that that removal is, is where the punishment is. That's why we say it's the worst of it. It will be an eternity knowing that there is a glorious God who they have no relationship with and no hope of ever restoring it. There are some in our world today that read this passage and others like it and say, well, that's just Paul being overly dramatic. Jesus wouldn't say that. Jesus wouldn't do that except for Jesus said that and will one day do that. In Matthew 25, we read this. When the son, these are words of Jesus, okay? You say, well, Paul's kind of mean. Well, Jesus didn't mean, let's read Jesus. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, talking about the same event, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This is his throne of judgment. Before him will gather all the nations and he will separate people one from another as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. And he will place sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And we skip down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, here's what we believe as a church. We believe that every word of this Bible is true from the first page to the last page. We don't make an excuse for it. It doesn't matter if it's the word of Jesus or the word of Paul. It's all the word of God. But if you're sitting here today and you think, well, I, I just think Paul's kind of hard and, and maybe Jesus wouldn't be. These are the words of Christ saying the exact same thing that Peter says, that when Jesus comes, there will be judgment pronounced on the enemies of God. All who have rejected the gospel, let me say that clearly, all who have rejected the gospel will experience the judgment of Christ in a way different than the church will. And that judgment will end in eternal punishment, separated from the presence of God. 
So here we have two judgments, the judgment of the church, which is refining us in the image of God, the judgment of the persecutors and those who have rejected the gospel that ends in everlasting punishment away from God. And all of this glorifies him. The Lord is glorified by his righteous judgment. Verses 10 through 12. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, so Jesus glorified in us, and to be marveled at among all who believed, because our testimony to you was believed, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Same we saw in verse 5. Worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul ends this prayer. That the judgment of the, the, the temporary right now sanctifying judgment of the church and the eternal destruction and punishment of the wicked in the righteous judgment of God, all of that brings glory to God. And he's actually borrowing from Old Testament language here. He almost directly quotes from Isaiah 66, at least a piece of it, where we read, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brother who hates you and casts you out for my name's sake. He said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The exaltation of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked is for the glory of God in his universe. And it is his universe. And we are his creations. So we are left with a question today. Am I prepared for the Lord's righteous judgment? There is no way, I hope, that you could hear this sermon today on God's judgment that will sit on every one of us Believer and unbeliever alike, while those judgments vary and are different, they are still the righteous judgment of God. I can't imagine you sitting here for the last half hour or so and hearing that and not wanting to know the answer to this question. Am I prepared? Because if this is true and you are not prepared, then that judgment that is coming upon the unrighteous is coming upon you, my friend. And yet God has promised to provide a way for you now in this moment to be prepared for it. Listen to what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter five. Paul writes there at the beginning of that passage about the judgment seat of Christ. He says, for we must all, 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 every one of us appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You may say, wait, is this a judgment of works? Somewhat, recognizing that those who are do anything good do so because of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. So when I and you, those redeemed in Jesus, stand before his judgment seat, I'm not going to say, look, Lord, I went to Africa on a mission trip. I'm going to say, look, Lord, I trusted in Jesus. And he did far greater things than me. And it is his goodness that I am going to rely on. And it is his righteousness birthed in my life through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is all I have to offer you, the righteousness of Jesus. Then we skip to verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. And we see that there's an answer here. There's a provision that is made for us to have assurance in that day of judgment. For our sake, Paul writes, 
He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You may be sitting here today and say, okay, I wanna be prepared for the righteous judgment of God. How can I do that? One way and one way only. Put your whole faith and hope in Jesus alone. That's it. I said, wait, that, that doesn't sound really that hard. It's not. This is the good news of the gospel, my friend. <laughs> that you don't have to do anything. Jesus did it for you. You just have to believe in him. To come to him in faith and repentance, calling on the name of the Lord so that you might be saved. And here's the promise of scripture. All who call upon his name will be saved. He who has made sin, who knew no sin, has died in your place so that you might become the righteousness of God. So that when Jesus comes in his righteous judgment, you will not experience eternal destruction, but go to everlasting life. This is the hope of the gospel. I pray that you believe that today. And if in your life you have believed that and you are walking in that now, do not fear the judgment of God now in this moment or what is to come at the end of time. There is no fear for the Christian. Number one, there's no fear in this life because the worst thing they could do to us is kill us. Listen, when I asked those guys there that question about what's gonna happen when, if the government finds out and they just said, well, they'll come and arrest us. I can tell you this, and I, I mean this. There was not an ounce of fear in their answer. Not a single moment of trepidation. They will come and arrest us. We will go to jail. Almost like this is what is supposed to happen, isn't it? Isn't the church supposed to deal with this type of persecution and suffering? We have nothing to fear in this life if we are in Christ. Even the judgment of God that is upon us now as the church of God is a good thing because that judgment is making us more into the image of his son. For his glory, the righteous judgment of God is made known to his creation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are making us into the image of Jesus. And while it, those refining fires may be uncomfortable for a moment. There will be eternal life as our reward. But we pray for those who right now, as the apostle Paul even once did in his life, persecuted the church, who are enemies of God, who have not believed the gospel of Jesus. Would, they, would their eyes be opened and their hearts be softened? And even some sitting here today, would they believe for the first time that Jesus alone is the way to God? Would you bring new life into their hearts, we pray. Let us be a church that endures suffering and persecution well. Let us walk through the refining fires, knowing that you are sanctifying us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.